This might be an impossible task, but I'm going to ask something from you before we get started. Bleed more, you want more blood. (laughs) Yeah. Is that it, Mr. Peckinpah? If I could do one more thing to cause you to bleed from the head. Welcome, everyone, to the Gravity Beard Podcast. We're recording today in Studio A. Thank you, as always, to our listeners. We appreciate your continued support. Okay, let's begin our latest audio adventure. We normally record in Studio A. Well, we're not there today. Instead, we're on location in the home of our guest. More on that a bit later. Joining me today is someone who has made several appearances on the show. He made his Gravity Beard debut in the fall of 2016 on our post-election episode. Then he played a prominent role in our series on the pop culture from 1992. And he was on a very memorable first installment of Catharsis. Catharsis. John, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Toph. I, uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here with our guest today. It's very exciting. Yeah, I agree. John, you and I are born just a few months apart. We both grew up in Dallas and are kids of the 80s. And as the 80s drew to a close, as we moved from middle school to high school, something entered our universe and dramatically changed the music landscape in Dallas. That brings us to today's guest. He was also born in Dallas. He's been in the radio industry for more than 40 years. We're going to learn in this interview that he's best known for being a pioneer, a groundbreaker, and an advocate for the up-and-coming artist. In addition to all of that, he's one of the architects of 94.5 KDGE, The Edge, a radio station that had a tremendous impact on John and me in our adolescent years. It's the great George Gamark. George, welcome to the show. Well, I don't know about that great thing, but I play records anyway. (laughs) Hopefully good records. Occasionally a clunker, but... I think we're going to learn in this interview... (laughs) It's mud on a wall. You've done far more than that. Okay, so one thing I'm going to circle back to before we jump into the questions is... We're sitting in your home. You were nice enough to have us out to your house. for the, to Iris' house. <laughs> for, for, for this interview. And, you know, we, we hung out for several minutes before we sat down for the interview. And I, I, don't, I don't know what the word is. It's, it's historian. It's archivist. It's you're both or all of those things. There's a lot of stuff here. Yeah. There, there really is. I've just, I've hung on to everything. You stay in one town. Ta- you know, I've done my entire broadcast career in one city, which is weird. I was going to say, that's not supposed well, to do right. that. That's tremendously rare for the industry. Yeah. Well, it's how you stay obscure because you don't <laughs> climb the ladder when you do that. So I haven't really been climbing the ladder. I've, I've taken lateral jumps, you know. There's no way that everyone in the industry is also an archivist and, and has as much historical stuff as you do. Right, that, that can't uh, be. <laughs> no, because they move too much. You can't yeah. you can't hang on to the stuff. And you were also nice enough to have us over right after you moved. So you even had even had a chance to set things up. Uh, most people said, "Hey, get back to me in a few months." You <laughs> you, were, you were nice enough to, to have us out before all that. I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> but but even even uh, in spite of that, you're able to put your hands on things that we've already been talking about and looking at and looking paging through CDs, albums, you know, records of. I mean, written records of things you've done, and you're able to do that quite easily. Well, we just listened yeah. to a recording from 1895. Yeah. Yeah, so? You know, which is, I mean, from an archivist and, and collector's yeah. point of view, is is pretty deep. That's impressive. Yeah, it's kind of deep. Yeah. But, but I'm most impressed that even, because your house looks like someone that just moved into their house, which is fair, because you haven't, <laughs> set, have. th- you haven't set things up. I'm still moving. But you're still able to put, you you, re- you reference something and you say, hey, let me go grab that, and you're able to. I would never be able to do that. You'd be in some box. The, and, I'm, the archival mm. mind. You, yeah, you're a very detailed yeah, person. Okay. That's, a, that's a unique trait. I'm starting to put stuff together. I mean, look at this. Right next to you, there's a stack of 
one, two, three, six tapes from KZEW's concert series where they took local bands into a recording studio and would do an hour live. And there's Medicine Wheel and Pyramid and... Uh, oh, there's a Casey Kasem master. I wonder what that is. Oh, I was wondering. Okay, uh, Kasem. Those all were rescued from Charlie Pride's recording studio here in Dallas. That somehow they wound up from the zoo wow. to Charlie Pride's studio. They were under a stairwell. They were going to be disposed of. And the right person said, I know who wants those. <laughs> and they called me up and I went over George and got them. take those. And yeah, that's what happens is I'm at the small end of the funnel now. When somebody like I just got a call uh, a couple of weeks ago from a guy who used to work on K Box back in the '60s, and he says I got a ton of air checks of myself I haven't heard in 50 years. Can you transcribe them? And it's like, yeah, absolutely, bring them over. That's wow. great. So there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, of new recordings that will enter the enter the archive of Dallas radio in the 1950s and '60s, which I think that's very cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, those but are rare. Those are those that is are rare. that is a you know it's the time capsule concept. Yeah. It's the keeping that alive. Well, you're serving a very important function for for the Dallas radio industry that no one else really no one else is carrying that torch. Right, employing you. <laughs> I, I wish, <laughs> I wish you would. No, but you're but you're doing something something no one else in the local radio industry is doing, right? You know, collecting and keeping all these things. Uh, no, there might be some other people. They tend to keep their own stuff. I tend to keep everybody's stuff, okay. or I or I find I send it to its correct home. <clears throat> Recently, I went into a barn um, uh, up in Sherman, where the remains of Sellers Recording Studio uh, had wound up. Sellers Recording Studio was active from the mid-40s through the late 70s. It was in downtown Dallas. And it was a, it was a commercial recording studio, but bands recorded there, but they also did a lot of commercials and jingles. And uh, so there were all these... When, they, when the guy moved out of there or died or what have you, all this stuff somehow wound up in Sherman, in a barn, literally a barn. And I managed to get an invite, go up there, dig through some stuff, and among the things, I mean, the, the real killer thing that I found in there was a previously unknown 1966 recording of Steve Miller working on a demo two years before he gets signed by Capitol Records. Wow. When he's, I think he's 21 years old, a demo paid for by his dad. And I had the multi-track master of it. The multi-track and, master of it. Yeah. And so Miller people and I are now discussing what we're going to do with that. Uh, that was the coolest thing. One of the, the strangest thing was I found a radio show called Texans for Nixon, <laughs> which was, um, hang on a second. There, there, were th there were three people as part of that organization. <laughs> Time for the following political program has been bought by the Texas for Nixon organization. <laughs> I don't know. You can't even hear that, can you? Today, the yeah. The eyes of Texans are upon Richard M. Nixon and John F. Kennedy, one of whom we will elect president of the United States on November the 8th. And are Texans stirred up about this election? Friends, you should see how the mail has already started rolling in. It's plain that Texans want facts. And that's what this program brings you daily at this time. The facts behind this campaign. Tune in every day and tell your friends. Join the tidal wave of Texans, which is building Wait up till you hear the spokesman. Nixon. And now here is Carpe Collins of Dallas. 
chairman of the Texans for Nixon Clubs of Texas, Mr. Collins. Friends and Texans, this is Carpe Collins, chairman of the Texans for Nixon Club, in another one of the series of radio programs that is being brought to you to keep you informed of the political campaign that we're now engaged in. I'm glad to tell you that the crusade is on. So this is a, a, a daily show that ran five days a week for the, I think, five weeks. No, closer to t- eight, eight or ten weeks prior to the election of 1960. And it's, it's just this, it's this astounding time capsule of anti-Kennedy stuff. Wow. A lot of the political issues are exactly the same as those of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it, it's very very familiar stuff, but this was a recording that was, you know, I I'd never heard of the program. I I don't need this in my archive. It's a little outside of what I do. Right. But I have to get it to the right place. Right. That's going to the Nixon Library. I've already uh, I've already worked out a trade with the Nixon Library, and so they're going to get a copy of that uh, digital files. When and you say trade. They're giving you something, obviously. Yes, yes. How do you know what to ask for? uh, Oh, I asked them if they had any film or photography, which I assumed they did, from uh, it would have been July of 1973 with Nixon meeting um, Prime Minister Tanaka on the South Lawn of the White House. And why did you want that? Uh, Because I'm in the pictures. Wow. I, (laughs) I was a Boy Scout used as a prop. Uh, for the the photos and I assumed that there was photos and maybe film and he said yes there were and I said I'll trade you You terrific so 16 year old me waving my American and Japanese flag while (laughs) with with all my Boy Scout buddies you're like what are we doing here okay just wait (laughs) yeah basically yeah we didn't know what was going on I mean we were on the side we were hey we've been invited to go to the White House because we're we're touring Washington DC and and then next thing you know we're on the South Lawn and I hear a lineup like this here. Hold these flags. Wave them when the guys come through. <laughs> it's very patriotic. Okay, whatever, whatever. And then Marine One lands, and out comes Nixon with this Japanese guy. And as they walk down, we're waving our flags, <laughs> and they're taping pictures. And I mean, he's just like five feet away from us. And then they go, and they make some sort of <clears throat> small speech and into the White House, and they try to shoo us off the lawn. <laughs> Uh, so we're done with you. Go, basically. Yeah, You've been yeah. dismissed. Okay, yeah, so, sure. uh, so here I finally have something the Nixon Library would want, and it's like, uh, okay, uh, hey, I can trade for that, you know. So yeah. I asked the guy, "Do you have this?" And he said, "Yeah, we have absolutely got it." That's great. I said, "Okay, it's a trade." Well, I, so those will go to that is getting stuff to the right spot. I don't it. need to be in my archive. That's the archive they need to be in, and I've already digitized them all, so mm-hmm. it's as simple as can be. Well, as a collector and archivist, I think that's the, the not just for Dallas, but obviously on a national level, that's the, that's the, the right way, the, that's the, the right thing to do. Yeah, the the way you're you're taking viewpoints on things of well, you know, this doesn't need to be disposed of; it needs to be recorded and, and preserved, preserved. And yeah, oh, I've got a bunch of stuff in my archives that I have to find the right, the exact right spot for. I mean, uh, one of the things I picked up at a yard sale that was just because it, it was just a, an astounding thing <clears> to find was. Uh, it was a, it was there was a guy who was this. He was a troublemaker. He was just he was a troublemaker in the late fifties and early sixties. And he had a little. Uh, it would have been a blog today. It was a little mimeograph news thing called, I think it was called Grassroots Oozings or something like that. And it was this, this ultra 
kind of he would he would take clippings from the newspaper and then wash them through viewpoints of either the John Birch Society or the Klan or whatever, and then put out his little magazine. Right. And I got this giant stack, you know, like a two inch high stack of these things that are, it's just such a time capsule of 1960, but it's so obscure and Southern and what have you. And I have to find the right home for those because it's it's out here again it's outside my collection right but it was headed for the trash can it but it's like, important and it's to, like this it's it's really fascinating stuff uh from a because i like as my music career will show i like troublemakers well this guy was a troublemaker <laughs> yeah, right. absolutely a different a troublemaker of a different sort but he was a <laughs> troublemaker he was the outlier he was the he was you know that the other so yeah that's something i need to find and i need to find you know the right place for yeah. it which so. you win and that place oddly enough probably for that is out there yeah I, I, <laughs> whether it's the opposite it's the people that want to hear it or the people that want to preserve it because it was said you know it's it, probably it the yeah it's probably view. you know um uh, yeah if i can yeah I, i'm sure at some point somebody will present they'll, they'll say oh well you know that really needs to go to whatever <clears throat> the museum of intolerance or something like that. So, <laughs> right, oh, okay fine uh yeah that's where we'll send it then so. Well, believe it or not, we haven't even started the interview yet. No, okay. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> but, but, but before we do, I, want, I did want to acknowledge... Off topic much? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> I told you this was rabbit hole central. And, and I, I'm, I'm great with that. Okay, let's, let's start here. What was it like growing up in Dallas in the 1960s? Uh, well, I split my growing up in Dallas in the 1960s with my... I spent my elementary years here. I spent my high school years here. But middle school was in Columbia, Missouri. Oh, okay. So I, I got a taste of both. Uh, I mean, I was out. I was a Lake Highlands kid. Right. So, so uh, and that was that's what I was going to ask you is, tell us about grade school, George. Dad, uh, yeah, I'm just a typical grade school kid. I mean, it was, I mean, geez, we, we knew Mr. Peppermint. He went to our church. Right. So, I mean... That was cool, yeah. uh, but I mean, it was just hey, it was you know, it was Americana. It was uh, it was Boy Scouts and campouts and riding bikes and hanging out in creeks and right. going to the train tracks up in Garland and watching LBJ be built because uh, it was not that far from our house. The when freeway they were, when they were carving out, yeah, not the right. guy, not the man, <laughs> the freeway. Although they're both kind of chalky, uh, but uh, yeah, watching that be built. And my dad was in the construction game, so. Got to see a lot of uh, really cool buildings being built under his uh, guidance, uh, one of which um, just reopened. It was the Statler Hilton. Sure. Um, my father was, uh, was one of the construction superintendents on that job back in the early 50s. But he also did uh, Parkland Hospital Children's. Uh, he did Dallas City Hall. was his last job in 1975. Um, so we saw a lot of the cons- thing through the eyes of the construction yeah, uh, world. And then when I went to Missouri, it was like I basically moved to Columbia, Missouri, which at the time was a town probably of about 30,000. So it was a small town, one high school, one junior high. Why did you guys move to Columbia? Construction game. Okay, you know, sure. Following the job. <clears throat> and so I got to, you know, climb water towers and hang out in the Ozarks and. You know, I hopped a freight train once with my friends. 
uh, <laughs> which seems like a romantic thing to do in movies, but in real life, um, it's tremendously t- dangerous, <laughs> t- dangerous. And yeah, yeah. We all have our bicycles and there's a stopped box car and a train. Hey, let's throw our bikes on and we can, we can ride it up to the edge of town. And well, the train went to the edge of town and picked up steam and kept going, kept going. until <laughs> we got to, you know, Sedalia or whatever, 60 miles away and the sun's going down and we have to make that phone call. <laughs> Uh, is that how you got back? You called yeah, the folks? Yeah, had to call the folks and say, where are you? Says, we're in Sedalia. How the hell did you get there? We rode a train. How'd you get on the train? It's a long story. Oh, that And you was, had your bikes with you. Yes. Talk about it. Yeah, you're not going to ride a bike 60 miles home at night. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. And be there by the time the streetlights come on. Through, it's just not going to happen. Through rural, rural Missouri. Yeah, as a, uh, you know, as a 14-year-old. Uh, bad idea. So, uh, yeah, that was a stony Good ride story, home. bad idea, yeah. right? So, That's how so they in, always work out. In your grade school years, what kind of music did you listen to? Was that... None. None. There was... In fact, I've, I've, I've gone over this with my brothers. I'm the, I'm the youngest of five, uh, although I have a twin, so <clears throat> I am acknowledging that he's older than my, myself, but just by seven minutes. Damn it. Um, <laughs> Still but better. In our household, we had the Bahamarimba band. We had Herb Albert. We had Enoch Light, um, Mancini. We, there was no rock and roll in our house uh, at all um, until my brothers moved out. And about the time I turned 12, 13, and I was given uh, the Guess Who's American Woman album, I was given uh, Inagata DeVita album, uh, Argent the first album by Argent, which is a weird album to give to a 12-year-old. Um, <laughs> True. And I was, I, was listen, I was listening to pop radio. I mean, because would, we would listen to pop radio sometimes in the car when it was all, you know, Jen and Dean and Sonny and Cher and right. know, late 60s sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was hardwired for top 40 um, as, as a kid as, when I was in, in junior high. Uh, and you were, we were getting ready to tip into a rabbit hole, if, if you don't mind. Because what what happens is, I'm really into, you know, Badfinger and Tommy James and the Shondells and whatever's mm-hmm. happening in Top 40 Radio in 1969, 70, 71. And around that time, you have American Graffiti comes around, the movie American the movie. Graffiti comes around, which celebrates the 1950s. Which most people... Maybe now people haven't heard of that movie, but that was a George Lucas film that starred Harrison Ford and, and a, I mean, a, Ron a big Howard, cast, yeah. a big cast. Yeah. And, and that movie kind of like, oh, well, it did this, there was this revival that went on at that in 1969, 70, 71 of 50s music, probably as, right. a, as a reaction to hippie culture. Right. Somebody was getting nostalgic about the 50s and it happened all, all across culture at that time. Right. And I, and I bought into it as a teenager. And so I suddenly got into fifties rock and roll because I felt much more at home with that than I did current rock and roll. Cause my friends were into, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin and Hendrix and bad company and all that. And, and I just couldn't care less about that. I didn't like that at all. Interesting. And so- I, and I was straight into, Elvis and Buddy Holly and the Cadillacs and the Drifters. And yeah, which was all Cook. which was all fifteen years old by that by that time. Yeah. So yeah. you weren't receiving. Well, you said you got um, the Guess Who at twelve, but like for myself, you know, I learned a lot. I had an older sister. She was five years older from me than me, and you know that was that's what I was hearing. So you had five older brothers. Well, 
for, really. Who never had a rock and roll record in the house. We had never ne- had one. There was a never a Beatles record in the house. Wow. There was never a Rolling Stone so record it didn't, in the house. You know, all through the 60s. The That's step- incredible. My oldest, my oldest brother graduates high school in 69. Not a single Beatles record in the house. I remember seeing one, my eldest brother, though, he liked The Doors. And mm-hmm. I remember seeing, you see that famous film clip of The Doors doing Light My Fire on Ed Sullivan with the set with It's All The Doors. I saw that happen yeah. live, yeah. you know, the night it aired. And I was going, oh, man, this, like, is, what a, is, this is a really cool group. <laughs> but I didn't pursue it. I didn't have the cash to go um, and buy albums. Okay. So I never really pursued The Doors. But then when the 50s thing comes along, I start having a little jingle in my pocket. I can go to garage sales and I started buying, you know, 50s rock and roll, and I started collecting records. Yeah, nickel at a time, because the garage so, sales, right? Yeah, exactly. Basically a nickel at a time. And so around that same time, 72, 73, I go to my grandparents' house, and I find my father's record collection. My father was in college in the early 50s, and so I find a lot of his records, and he's got a lot of Spike Jones records. Now, Spike Jones is a music comedian. My, Spike Jones is Weird Al Yankovic of the 1940s. Right. Interesting. He would take current pop records and he would make fun of them. And these absurd or complicated <laughs> arrangements. And I love those records. But I also got into big band records because I was a horn player. I played trombone. So I started getting into Dick Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and all that swing music. So as a high school kid in 1973-74, when my friends are in Led Zeppelin and Grand Funk and Pink Floyd, I'm doing Glenn Miller and Elvis. Interesting. You know, I'm like way out of step. Yeah, that's... Uh... And then, That's a big bridge. And, and I had a group of friends that we were into, <clears throat> into that music. And then when I get to university, it's 1975, and I meet a guy, uh, Don Foster, who now runs the big record store up on the square in Denton. I meet him uh, when he's working for the university. And he says, oh, well, you know, you like records. You know, have you ever heard of this group? And he starts introducing me to reggae. And he introduces me to German electronic stuff like Faust and Neu and uh, Kraftwerk and Claude Schulz. Well, let, let me interrupt you right there because yeah. now we're getting way ahead, <laughs> which, which is fine. I'm I told okay. you it was a rabbit hole. No, no, no. I'm okay with that. I love where this is going. Uh, let me back up a couple of steps. Uh, so we, we're about to get into your college years. When was the first time that you knew you wanted to be in radio? Or, 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 and let me ask another question. Were you involved in any school organizations or activities that served as precursors to your future career? Okay, well, we can... Okay, we'll just back up just a tad. Okay, so... Because I, w- I want to bridge that. I'm in, I'm, yeah, and we're kind of getting to that. I'm in... I'm in uh, uh, I was working on... <clears throat> I was a cartoonist. I was working on the newspaper staff. Uh, for? And, for Lake Highlands High School. Lake Highlands High School, right. And uh, I, was, I was pretty good. Um and they said, you know, you ought to start writing, you know, you ought to start writing for the newspaper. And it's like, mm, okay. And, they, and I was assigned a story. And they said, write a story about Dallas radio. I said, oh, okay. And just find five radio stations and write about them. You got a full page in the school newspaper. Oh, okay. And so, so what, I, what, what year was this? This, this was would have been in 75, I think. I've, got, I've, got the, I've actually got the article framed. <laughs> the article is framed. It used to I'm hang in my other bathroom, but I'm not sure where it is uh, right now yeah. uh, but I, ha- I have it. And, 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 the, and the article was called uh, Sure Beats Working um, <laughs> and I went out and I tracked down uh, disc jockeys from uh, five, five of the radio stations including KVIL um, 92 and a half which was uh, 
KCPS at the time. It was a, a top 40 station and the zoo and WFAA AM, Terry Bell and KLIF, which was a station I listened to. And I sat down with each of these disc jockeys and talked to them about, you know, what it was like being in radio as a, high, as a high school kid. So as a high school senior, you were able to get access to all of these people. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's easy to do. And I, I mean, you say that. <laughs> and and then, I came, I came back right. I came back from the, I wrote the, wrote the article up and I came back and I said, my God, these guys are getting paid for playing records. They're making a living playing records. <laughs> it appealed to my lazy nature. Yeah. And I went, oh, I think I got to do this. Okay. So that sent you in that direction. Was there another direction you were heading vocationally at that uh, age? Were probably you... in petroleum engineering because I was interested in geology. Okay. And there's a lot of opportunity for that in Texas at the time. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so it was probably going to be okay, uh, geology so... or journalism, one or the other. So, so you were heading towards either journalism or the oil business, yeah. somewhere around the oil business. Yeah. And you took a left turn. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys, fork in the road, one of the guys I talked to, which is a guy, um, he was, went by the name major Tom Lewis or KVIL kind of became my, my mentor that year. And he basically said, you know, if you want to do this, you need to get your toe in the water. You need to get an internship at a radio station, any station. I don't care what they play. If you like what they play or not, get your foot in the door, Foot in the door. So you can see what, what it's like so you can make this decision now so you don't waste a lot of years and then oh, you get yeah. in the business and you have to get out. Really good and advice. So, so I started making phone calls and my the first person to say, yeah, come down and talk to us was at WRRAM 1310, which is was at Fair Park. It was an all news station. And basically they said, yeah, we've got an intern. He's getting ready to go to uh, North Texas. We're losing him this summer, so uh, why don't you replace him? He'll t- come in, he'll train you, and your shift is from uh, three eight and or uh, from three to nine. And I said, great, I can come down after after, after school. school. And he said, no, 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 <laughs> it's three a to nine a. <laughs> so as a as a senior for about for about two months, um, I I would go down to WRR. Well, actually, it wasn't for two months. It was beginning in April of 75. I would go down for, at three in the morning. I would show up when there was basically almost nobody at the station. It was me and the news guy. And I would, and I, they taught me to rip wire. Uh, that, I'm sorry, I'm being all technical here. I would tear stories off the wire machines, right. teletypes. I would get the recording on a cart of the news actuality, put them together, stack them up and hand them to the news guy so he could read them and, and have the sound actuality. I don't want to gloss over one thing. Your, your folks signed off on you yeah, driving to a, say, a radio station at 3 o'clock in the driving morning. Driving to Fair Park, which is not exactly the most shining and wonderful neighborhood right. at 3 in the morning. So what was that conversation like to say, hey, I've got this internship I'm really excited about? From a father who wanted me in the construction game. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. How, well, how did you... You're going to do what? Uh, he'll get over it. Yeah. yeah. Probably he'll get over it. But uh, so... The guy, Mark Willis, the guy who uh, uh, trained me, who was leaving to go off to college, he, he spent one night training me how to make coffee, how to clean the restrooms. <laughs> oh. you, know, all the, all the <laughs> you were the janitorial stuff. staff as well, huh? Interns, oh, wow. Interns do everything. That's, well, that's true. Yes, they do. They get the uh, and that still the remains privilege today. of being and there. Then, and then, he, then he, he bugs off and, okay, tomorrow you're on your own. Okay, great. So I show up for work. <laughs> Everything's wonderful. Uh, and I'm only there about an hour. 
and it's April 30, 1975. I really, I, I will for always, always remember my first day in the business. Um, we had a row in the newsroom. It was an all news station. So we had a huge row of teletypes across one wall of the newsroom. It was like six teletypes, AP, UPI, you know, they, they were all there. And I was taught that, you know, if, if it rang one, if there were, the bell went off once and it started typing a story, well, that's a story. If it rang twice, it's a little more important. If it rings three times, that's a bulletin. You probably need to get that into the newsroom real quick. If it rings more than that, you need to call somebody. Yeah. Well, all the teletypes at about four in the morning went silent. They never fell silent. They were always chugga, 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 chugga. You know, they were always running and they all fell silent for about 60 seconds. And it was like, okay, this is weird. That's eerie. They're not supposed to be quiet. Are they plugged in? Yeah, they're plugged in. And then they started ding, 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 ding and spinning rolls of rows of asterisks. You know, it's kind of like, okay, bulletin, bulletin to follow. And then the news story started coming out. Well, it's the fall of Saigon. You know, oh, yeah. uh, wow. the America is getting out of, of South Vietnam and the bulletins just start coming fast and furious. And I just have to run in to the news guy and says, what do I do? And he says, start grabbing me actuality, get me a copy as fast as you can. And I'm just like hustling stuff as fast as I can, but I'm overwhelmed. And he, he says, it's my first day on the job for crying out loud. Right. And he says, here's, he gives me his memographic list and he says, here's, here's the staff. Call everybody, get them in here. So as a high school senior, <laughs> I'm, I'm waking people up at four in the morning. They have no idea who I am. And I'm saying, you need to come to work. Uh, Saigon has fallen. Uh, okay, kid, you know, who the hell is this? You know, uh, and by about five o'clock, most ever, you know, there's about 20 people in the, in the station and things are really buzzing. By the time I leave at 9 a.m., you know, everybody's there and the place is full of, you know, cigarette smoke and the smell of coffee and paper stacked up and guys, it looks like it did in the movies, you know, with guys, shirt sleeves rolled up, white shirts, ties, you know, the whole works. And then as I'm leaving that day, uh, I ask uh, uh, Mr. Pryor, uh, the manager, I said, I said, I'll be back tomorrow. And he says, oh, I thought we'd chased you off by now. And I said, is it always like this? And he said, not since Nixon quit, kid. <laughs> it, was like, <laughs> and it was like, okay. So, you know, that was my that was my baptism by fire. No kidding. You know, so when I see the film clips of the helicopters on the embassy roof, you know, taking off, I go, I know where I was. Yeah, I was crapping no myself in my first day of work. So that was, you know, so I spent from <clears throat> April 30, 75, until uh, August uh, those months working at WRR for free. I think we knew this might happen. Anytime you have good conversation, you run the risk of running out of time. That's exactly what's happened here. George, would you mind coming back for another episode? Yes. <laughs> you, you would mind coming back? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm held captive. I'm, I'm here in the bunker, so why not? Terrific. I appreciate that. Too much trouble climbing up the ladder again. <laughs> For my good friend and co-pilot John and our special guest, George Gamark, I'm your host, Toph, and we'll see you next time. Well, believe it or not, we haven't even started the interview yet. No, okay. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> Watching LBJ be built, because uh, it was not that far from our house. The freeway. Were, when they were carving out. Yeah, not the right. guy, not the man. <laughs> the freeway. Although they're both kind of chalky. 
No, I'm actually going to show, tell him something he doesn't know. Oh, gosh. It's hard to, you know how hard that is to do? <laughs> uh, I would have been WLIR's last employee. Oh, no, I was oh. going to get to that. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I knew it. Oh. oh Chris I'm, is very thorough. I am, you know, I am gutted. was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com. Do I get my check now? i